1: Foods Market creates win-win partnerships with our suppliers, and we love to tell their stories. Brooklyn Brine grew from a two-person moonlighting operation to an eight-person production force in Gowanus in just one year, churning out pickle varieties like Chipotle carrots and lavender asparagus. Come have a taste in one of our six Manhattan locations.
2: Boys, I'm Mellon the Honeydew. Yay.
3: Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm your host, Damon Bolte. In the studio today, a very, very long title of former pastry chef and sommelier, bar owner, bartender, spirits chemist, and DIY cocktail party uh, curator, a uh, very good friend that I'm glad to have finally in the studio, Mr. Meyer Subarau. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Damon. It's awesome to have you here, man. We've been talking about it for a while. I know. I'm really excited to be here. Cool. It's great. So, uh, obviously, like we just said, you've got a, a lot going on, <laughs> which is awesome. Uh, it's always nice to uh, talk to people like yourself that really like get into... Get into the whole like work side of things, and uh, and are able to just make a, a ton of really cool things happen. Currently, you're uh, you are uh, part owner of uh, Myol, correct? Uh, you're bartending at Amoria Margo. yes, and Dram, yep, and. You're working on uh, spirits with uh, Bitterman's, some of your recipes you've been working on
4: for a while? Uh, correct. We just launched uh, last month, but uh, these are you know, recipes that I've been playing around with for a very, very long time, uh, for actually for many years. And then, to top it all off, you are a full-time attorney. Uh, correct. Correct and and hopefully my partners aren't going to mind my being here at, uh, <laughs> at at four o'clock chatting about drinks, but uh, <laughs> but but they're very understanding, so I've been able to you know juggle as best I can. Excellent. Let's
3: talk about uh, a little bit about that. What do you, what do you do as, as an attorney? Like as is far as
4: your focus. So my primary focus is in environmental and energy law, and I actually work with uh, smaller clients who are doing everything from green building to. Um, you know, zero emissions corn stoves to solar panels, etc. Um, help them find uh, local government and state government funding, uh, and then introduce them to venture capital and investment banking firms if they're you know at the right stage. Uh, I also do these days, just because of my other interests, uh, a lot of work with um, restaurant, bar, and culinary. Uh, entrepreneurs you know just again helping them in similar ways you know finding funding developing business planning services uh also working you know with government on regulatory issues excellent have you ever talked to uh uh former guests of the show
3: we had uh, brad farron and nick jared on before and they uh, i know this last summer they were
4: working on a, a a green bar yes and actually um brad and nick and i have had had great discussions about you know all of the issues involved energy management, water management, um, lowering transportation footprint. You know, there, there are all sorts of, of, of angles that one has to consider. and, And it is actually, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you start off just, just thinking you want to do something that's going to be, you know, good for the environment. And then you realize you've got to have 15 different factors to address and, you know, take care of them all. And, those guys have actually done a very good job of 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 starting on basic principles and really you know dealing with each and every one of the complex issues that arise yeah what would be one uh uh, an example of like one or two of the uh, the biggest issues
3: with doing something like that
4: water management really is a huge one uh and actually it's it's always been very jarring for me to be working on um you know with clients who are developing these these amazing gray and black water systems and you know um solar powered pumps, etc., and then, you know, work in a sort of standard bar restaurant setting where we just dump ice at the end of the night and pour water down a down a sink until, you know, everything everything's melted, etc. And, you know, especially obviously you know, a lot of what they're they're testing is, is out in the middle of deserts even, so you really have to be careful about water conservation. But uh, but I think, you know, there are very interesting ways to um, reduce reuse and recycle the ice and the water that you use you know we we don't really think about that because we're not frugal with it but even just you know thinking about different techniques of making drinks you know um you know not doing stirred drinks where you discard ice but you know rather building and you know building drinks in you know all at once rather than in sequence so that you can use the same container etc so would that involve like uh you
3: know obviously uh, with with cocktails they're about Usually around 20% water from the dilution from shaking or stirring. Would that involve adding water initially and then keeping it cold or, or, and then just pouring it rather than using ice? Uh,
4: That's actually a very efficient way of dealing with stirred drinks. Uh, If you, yeah, if you add water and then freeze, you're actually able to keep, for one thing, because um, cold environments are less hygroscopic, you're actually able to keep water in your drinks and not have water lost to the atmosphere. Whereas if you're stirring in an open container with ice, you're actually going to lose some water to the atmosphere as well.
3: Right. That's very interesting. Um, so with, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, with, uh, with these different types of, uh, uh these methods, I, 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 when I talk to these guys on the show about this, it sounds, I mean, it makes me want to go back to burning man, <laughs> you know, and, and check this out, even though it's been a while. Um, but do you think uh, we're going to start seeing a lot more of
4: those of that kind of spirit? No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> you know, up? i'd I'd really like to. I I think that it's sort of an ideal intersection, certainly of what I do professionally um, in different realms. It's an ideal, inter- I mean, I think it's it's an ideal next step for all of us. Is really you know greening the bar. Uh, if nothing else, I think it's. I think it's very tricky. Uh, you know, one of the things that obviously that we were talking about before the show and that, that I've been interested in exploring is, you know, we are coming out of an era in, in bartending where the goal was to perfect classic technique and classic methodology and get us to, you know, do everything that is a time-honored practice as well as possible. And I think that if you follow similar trends in the culinary world, you kind of have to get there before you can then move to sure. more sustainable practice, if only because in a way you're sort of cheating yourself out of seeing the whole picture before you move to sustainable practice. So, you know, I think you can, you can often see it, for example, in, you know, what makes a really good... Local seasonal sustainable restaurant, you know, a good local seasonal sustainable restaurant is a restaurant where the chefs understand, you know, all of the fundamentals of cuisine. But at the same time, they now understand how to refine their practices, whether it comes to purveyors or running their restaurant, energy use, water use, etc. They understand how to change that around so that it's not a wasteful and and you know environmentally degrading practice and i think that you know we eventually can get there i i i do feel like even now you know stuff as simple as using locally sourced and seasonal ingredients is still a rarity in the bartending profession i know that there are you know probably i would say you know maybe more people on the west coast than on the east coast to do it maybe not um you know, but it's a relatively small part of the market, and it. I think it it really just requires mindfulness. And you know, if there's anything that the craft cocktail movement is good at, it's mindfulness. So I think we will get there. Sure,
3: and it's also it's very hard to uh, be local
4: when you're trying to make a whiskey sour in New York City. Yep, you're not getting uh, you're not getting lemons <laughs> from New Jersey. You know? <laughs> exactly, exactly, and 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 you know, of course, I was going to say that you know we we live in a temper, you know. All, all, all these all these fantastic cocktail bars in New York and London that, you know, nonetheless want to be able to make sours are, you know, run into a necessary problem. Right. You know, a, da- a daiquiri is not a it's not ever going to be a locally sourced drink. Right. Um,
3: so I, I, I think it's very interesting that you've uh, you moved into this field and especially like with this focus on, uh, on, on culinary and, and cocktail uh the, the world of culinary and, and cocktail uh, but how did you actually get into uh originally
4: get into that world uh it was out of a desire to remain cool and not in the uh you know not in the sense that that your listeners might be thinking of uh i worked uh through middle school and high school uh as my summer job for initially for caterers and then for a couple of restaurants And um, I quickly realized that the best way uh, to work in a kitchen in summer is to work as a pastry chef, because that way you don't have to be on a hotline in 100-degree weather. You could be in the walk-in rolling truffles or or what have you. And um, I worked as a pastry chef until I went to college. And um, subsequently, through the end of college and law school, I decided to go back into the restaurant world. Uh, but of course, you know I couldn't work as a pastry chef because I couldn't, you know, work a four a.m. all day shift. Um, you know, but I could work a couple of nights a week, and so I ended up being hired by one of my former employers, um, the the brilliant Francois Payard at uh, Le Bernardin. And then moved to Daniel um, as a um, sommelier. He introduced me to uh, um, to Jean Leblédieu at the time, who's the master sommelier there, and um, and I was able to sort of do that for a while, uh, but. Cocktails were really kind of a much, much better fit for me in many ways because as a pastry chef, I was always inclined toward things that really leveraged technical knowledge, chemistry, composition, and, you know, just sort of a generally gearhead, gearhead kind of sensibility. And, you know, yeah, you know, you you. Cocktails and pastry, as as you know, are, are very very similar. You're, you're you're taking a bunch of ingredients. You're dealing with precise time and temperature conditions. Um, you're dealing with atmospheric conditions as well. You know, you want things to get wet at the right rate. You want things to get cold at the right rate. You want things to stay dry sometimes. Uh, and you know, it's about precise, duplicable measurements. And and I love that. That's amazing. And it, it's it's. It,
3: it's one of the things that uh, a lot of cocktail bartenders say you know as opposed to uh you know like grilling and uh and you know like cooking out it's kind of you know you just you can just wing it you know kind yeah. of like uh you know shots of beers but when you when you're doing uh when you're doing uh cocktail work it's a lot like baking you know like you like you just said and uh you know it really makes it a lot more interesting too yeah. like when you're behind the bar and it's a little bit obviously a lot more fulfilling um Oh, yeah i think that's such a cool cool path that you've you started out there and now you're like working your way through that through the uh up through the ranks now you're uh taking care of uh, uh restaurants and bars in a in a very responsible cool way so i think that's awesome nice. um yeah so uh i want to talk a little bit more about uh the bartending when we get back from this break and uh yeah so we'll be back with myers burrow <laughs>
2: the necktie's asleep And the combo went back to New York The jukebox says to take a leak And the carpet needs a haircut And the spotlight looks like a prison break Cause the town The balcony is on the make and a piano has been drinking the piano.
3: Ah uh, yes, The Piano Has Been Drinking by Tom Waits. Every bartender likes Tom Waits. I haven't met one single bartender that doesn't like. So uh, we're back from the break. You're listening to The Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolty, And in the studio today, we have good friend, Meyer subara And right before the break, we, we talked about, obviously, like where you got started in the, the cocktail and culinary world up to where you are now uh of course we didn't mention uh a few key points first of all we i think we did say for a second um you're part owner at my and you're also bartending at Dram and, and amore margo and you're at dram on sundays and amore margo on tuesdays but you're also teaching some classes Correct. from time to time at amore margo
4: yeah and actually that's been really exciting i'm i'm obviously a big believer in cocktail education i had been sort of running a a little underground series for a while that i'm hoping to restart where we just you know showed up in extremely unlikely locations with little secret emails and dragged you know top of the rock top of the rock (laughs) yeah um some 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 really bizarre locations that way actually uh we did we did do one on we did do one on top of one of the eagles in the chrysler building actually wow yeah amazing yeah i bartended from standing on one of the on the heads of one of the eagles it's pretty exciting that's so epic it was pretty great it's kind of metal too <laughs> <laughs> i'm just glad i didn't fall off would have been a long way down seriously that would have freaked me out that's like one
3: of my only fears is heights i, I, I get crazy uh, vertigo uh especially if i had a few cocktails <laughs> but okay so you started you started doing these uh kind of diy cocktail parties that were like just popping up everywhere and that was really a fun experience, I'm sure.
4: Oh, it's it's a great experience, you know. And and in many ways, what I get out of the classes at Amor is, you know, I try to bring people into a, a somewhat more formalized version of that experience. As I said, I still want to do the, you know, the wild and crazy gorilla cocktail night. And, of course, I think that's a, you know, that's become a thing that, you know, better men than I are, are doing in some pretty amazing ways. I think that, you know, I mean, Brian Miller's Tiki Nights are just... Wonderful, and you know the fact that people are now guest bartending all over the place is you know really creating a nice kind of free and easy environment in general. Uh, But yeah, I do, and you know, I I do like I, I like the DIY element. I also really do like the educational element. I think that it's really fun to give people a little bit of knowledge. And here, I'm not talking about industry people as much as I'm talking about lay people. I think that you can really impart a lot of Context as to what we as professionals are doing mm-hmm. to lay people, you know, in just a little bit of time, and really, you know, get them to understand how interesting you know, well, this field is.
3: Exactly, and even you know, uh, even exposing people to different spirits. I you know there's there's a lot of things that we that we know about as bartenders, especially you know, like you're working at a Moria Margo, All these bitters, you know, it's still a very misunderstood thing by a lot of people and that you know obviously that aren't in the industry and it's such a cool like platform to to teach about you know bitters and and uh you know even things as simple as vermouth you know that it's always been around you know it's always been around and you know it's just one of those misunderstood things as well but it's in so many classic cocktails and it's it's such an important part depending on which style you use but also which brand and you know it goes so deep
4: Right. And I mean, you know, a lot of the, obviously a lot of the refinement is, a, you know, a lot of the refinement in technique over, over the years with the cocktail renaissance has been, you know, in figuring out more precisely why different ingredients go together, you know, trying to not only decipher these sort of, you know, now ancient pre-prohibition codices that talk about, you know, as you were saying, an amaro or a vermouth, you know, and trying to figure out what exactly the flavors are that you're trying to unlock there by adding this ingredient to your drink, but also, you know, trying to contextualize why all of these different flavors work together. You know, that's that's something again that the culinary world has been, you know, doing now for decades, and you know, people understand why um you know you know why 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 chocolate and coffee go together or, you know, why eggs and truffles go together. But, you know, they're, you know, we're only now developing the language in the cocktail world to understand why, you know, bitters, vermouth, and gin go together differently from different bitters, different vermouth, and whiskey. And, sure. you know, one of the things that I'm really happy about at Amore Margo, and actually, you know, in a very, in almost the the opposite way at Dram, is being able to, you know work both with customers as well as, you know, with my own colleagues behind the bar to explore how, you know, this enormously broad range of ingredients can, you know, eventually all be understood, cataloged, and how you can understand what the need for different flavors to fill in the gaps is, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. And
3: speaking of which, uh, you you know, before the show, we were talking a little bit about uh, and very recently, this has been a, a new development for you. Um, you've started working with uh, with the Bittermans people on some liqueurs, specifically liqueurs that we cannot get here, like uh, in the in the style of like Suze or Amerpicon, you know. And when did you start working with those? I mean, because they're they're very important for classic cocktails. Um, you know, I, I, obviously we say uh, you know the next step is to move past perfecting. These classics, but we weren't able to, you know, without these ingredients. So, when did you start messing around with your uh, your proprietary recipes?
4: So, it's actually been for a couple of years, and the place that I started initially was with vermouths, and it was largely because of my wine background. Uh, it was really all based on a bottle of amber vermouth that I found on the back shelves at Fortnum and Mason uh, in London, and brought over because I had been having a conversation. Uh, with Phil Ward uh, at Death and Company about um, you know this this particular missing ingredient, and uh, you know I started to realize that well you know these are these are things that bring a particular flavor, and they're interesting because we don't have when we look at our shelf of ingredients, our spice cabinet as it were, we don't have that particular flavor here, or we don't have that particular combination of flavors, and to a certain extent you know, there's nothing wrong with duplicating or replicating that flavor in a different way. But ultimately, one of the great things about vermouths and liqueurs is that they are very specific. You know, you are talking about a composed recipe in a bottle, and it's not easy to duplicate that, you know, just willy-nilly. And so, again, I worked on vermouths because they appealed to my wine palate, and, you know, it was kind of You know, it was a relatively straightforward transition for me to, you know, understand, okay, well, you know, here I'm getting some of the honey notes of a journal song, here I'm getting, you know, the, you know, it madeiraized, and, you know, this is how I can kind of, you know, blend a little bit of Madeira in and leave it in an open container for a little while to pick up the necessary elements. And so vermouths were the way I started. And then, you know, and then from there, it really became, you know, moving from dealing with, with wine products to dealing with distilled products and playing with, um, you know, doing a little bit of of, of home, home pot stilling, but then um, also just, you know, maceration and rectification. And that was, you know, very much about trying to bring, you know, I mean, as you said, I mean, these are, these are flavors that exist, and they are flavors that are in the classic cocktail lexicon, but to American bartenders, they are missing flavors. And right. so my goal was to just, you know, work out, you know, again and again and again, and I was lucky enough to, you know, I had access to a mass spectrometer, so I, you know, definitely just sort of picked up a couple of things, and then the goal was really to recreate them in my own idiom, and that's part of it. You know, I've never, you know, the Picone replica that I've been doing for years now, and it has been three years, the SUSE replica that I've been doing for close to three years are they're, they're recreations, not replications. My goal wasn't to you know, plug in the exact same sets of, of, of ingredients or the exact same sets of chemicals, oh, sure, I should say, sure. but to recreate the flavor.
3: Yeah. And so did this start out as something pers- – like as a personal project for you? Or was this something that you imagined becoming
4: uh, a product that was going to be – I never thought it was going to become a commercial product. It was always a completely personal project for me. It, it, was, it was always that, something, yeah. That cocktail geek inside of you, like, I have to make this the right way. I, I,
3: I need this cocktail. I need to exactly. know what it's
4: like. Exactly. Yeah. In many ways, I mean, I would, even, I would even see it as sort of a microcosm of making a new cocktail recipe. You know, it was, to me, you know, making my pecan replica was like making, you know, my favorite cocktail in a bottle. It was, you know, I want to achieve... All these flavors here, and I want to give people something that's going to, you know, just just be a sort of, you know, pristine Madeleine for them in certain cases.
3: Awesome. And so, how did you go about this? Did you were you picking up bottles when you were abroad? I mean, were you having? So you, I
4: had I had reference bottles. um Of course, the tricky thing about the picone is that it took me ages to actually find a pre reformulation or an old formula picone bottle because with the my white Bicone, instead yeah. of the red, yeah. 'Cause my Picone is based on the old seventy-eight proof formula rather than right. the current twenty-one and eighteen percent, so forty-two and thirty-six proof formula. And and I will actually say that, you know, I have I have reference bottles of the the current Picone Amer and, and the current Picone beer, and and I do actually think that in many ways, you know, it's I don't want to say it's an overrated product, but but I I do wanna say that like it's it's very different from what a lot of people are inclined to think when they're gonna try it. It's not it's milder, mm-hmm. and so you know what I make at this point is substantially more. It's it's a big it's it's bigger. It's more aggressive. It's more alcoholic, etc. And so it is kind of different. You know, in the case of the Sues and the, the Gentian, it's a little closer to like what the existing conventional flavors are.
3: Yeah,
4: and that was again it was easier because it was you know picking up a bottle of Sues, just trying to you know pick out what I felt with the individual flavors, and then you know playing with a, a bunch of quick macerations.
3: Yeah. So what you're saying is like, if we uh, if we make a Brooklyn cocktail with your recipe, it's going to be more like the original Brooklyn cocktail. I hope so. Then the <laughs> than the current uh, Pecan. Right. I mean, yeah. It'll, yeah, it'll be different. Is sure, I, sure, but that, it'll be yeah. closer than the uh, current uh, Pecan.
4: I, I I hope so. Yeah.
3: Well, I've I've done it. I've actually uh, made several of them now. Oh, okay. Because uh, I've had the bottle in my bar for a couple of weeks. And I gotta say it's delicious, it's a great product, and you did a excellent job working on that and making that happen. And it's great because like you know, that's one of those things that we need, you know, and like we were talking about before the show as well. There are so many flavors out there and so many uh liqueurs and, and products that it it's it's a constant learning process, you know, for for bartenders, for consumers, and there's a whole wide world out there of, of flavors that we haven't had yet and getting them together and making New classics. I mean, we always call them modern classics. classics. You know, it's a a very exciting time to be a bartender and, you know, a customer on the other side of the bar. And speaking of which, um, Avery and Janet from Bitterman's are going to be here next week on the show. And we'll be going through some tastings of the the entire product line of the new liqueurs. And I've I've tasted through them all, but I can't wait to do it again. And, uh, yeah, so that should be a really cool cool show next week so i do want to point out just again that uh you do bartend at amoria Margot on tuesdays Correct. and you're at dream on sundays yep and if you're lucky enough you'll just catch him around the lower east side anyway <laughs> that's, uh, what, that's how i usually find you I,
4: I was i was going to say exactly i'm, I'm always <laughs> within reach
3: cool man well it's been my great pleasure to uh to have you on the show today and i'm glad we finally got to do it and it's always fun talking to you and i hope you come back sometime
4: uh we look forward to it
3: awesome thanks mayor thank you. you've been listening to the speakeasy we'll check in next week Till then, cheers.
2: Oh man, he's high. Yes, higher than a kite. Boba Dooty. That cat is high. Look at that look in his eye. Man, I wouldn't lie. The cat's higher than a kite. Now when you see him stumbling
1: up and down the street, you know that cat's been drinking. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network.